October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, episode number 65, The Color Line, part 6. Last time we talked about the end of Arthur G. Daniels' presidency as General Conference President and the rise of W.A. Spicer, spicy, spicy, and his role as General Conference President, how he was kind of focused on mission more than Daniels, while Daniels moved into a role as secretary. They just kind of switched spots. While Daniels moved into a role as secretary, working on the training of ministers, starting what became Ministry Magazine. That was his baby. We also talked about the Glendale Sanitarium and how that went way over budget and the kind of the role that Adventist institutions were playing at this part of Adventist history in the 1920s. And I think that we're caught up. So it is time to return to the color line, my friends. The last time we visited the color line, we talked about how Lewis Sheaf, the man John Harvey Kellogg considered to be the best preacher in Adventism, had left the church, came back again, left again, ostensibly because of the segregation practices in the church. A sympathetic newspaper in Savannah, Georgia, described Sheaf's final split with the church, writing that it was, quote, because of the oppressive and unjust discrimination against the Negro by the officials of the denomination, End quote. A Denver paper called Sheaf's second split with the church, quote, an event of great historical importance, end quote, and called Sheaf and his congregation a, quote, heroic body of Christian workers, end quote. Why did Sheaf break ranks with a denomination a second time? Well, the Denver paper mentions that Sheaf couldn't accept Ellen White's counsel in Testimonies, Volume 9, that the colored and white Adventists should not labor together, shouldn't work together. And this is kind of puzzling because didn't Sheaf read the first sentence of the chapter in question where Ellen White writes, quote, I have some things to say in regard to the colored people of the southern states of America, end quote. She wasn't writing to black Adventists in Los Angeles where Sheaf was. And she went on to say, quote, in different places and under varying circumstances, the subject will need to be handled differently in other words, she wasn't proposing a policy that needed to be handled that way, the same way, everywhere. She wasn't envisioning segregation being the church's kind of de facto practice, although it was, and although Adventists like A.W. Spaulding would defend it, what Ellen White proposed is, is a convenient practice. I shouldn't say convenient. What Ellen White proposed as a is a kind of a concession to 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 race to racism in America. Uh, a. W. Spaulding saw as a principle. That's how I want to put it. There we go. Now, to be clear, Ellen White wrote about the color line in two ways, and this is what threw this is what threw Sheaf off. She wrote about the color line at times idealistically. You know, this is the way things should be and should be in the church. And she would at times write about the color line pragmatically. This is what we have to accept as reality. Now, she believed that the Bible recognizes no caste or color. She believed it was ideal for white and black people to worship together in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But it was her 
pragmatic statements that Sheaf and others found troubling. The way she counseled white and black workers not to work together. The way she counseled believers to build separate white and black churches. The way she urged black believers to not push for social equality. Now, Sheaf told the Southern California Conference leaders that he believed Ellen White was a prophet, but that he doubted Ellen White even wrote those pragmatic statements because he couldn't figure out how do you square these statements together. Such was the contrast he saw between her idealistic and her pragmatic statements that he couldn't or just wouldn't reconcile them. So he didn't think that some of these statements were things that she had actually said or written. He believed that others had somehow slipped them into her writings, which is just a common thing. Like, a lot of these people who want to hold on to Ellen White but can't accept something she said, they just they find ways to, uh, throughout Avenue's history, to say, well, this wasn't inspired, this was. And uh, especially for Sheaf, who held on, like many did, to some notion of verbal inspiration. Anyways, he couldn't reconcile them or wouldn't reconcile them. It's not clear whether Ellen White's writings on the color line were really a stumbling block for Sheaf or just a convenient straw man. I mean, they, they were a straw man. It's, it's clear when you read his objections. I mean, they're, they're sincere. They're serious issues that need to be dealt with. But it, it's not clear that he went through any sort of kind of agony uh, mental work at trying to reconcile them, right? We don't we don't see his like, well, I can see how this works with this. And he just kind of takes them at face value, sometimes misrepresents them, and and then and just kind of reacts to them that way. It, you don't see a lot of kind of m mental lifting, trying to piece this together and, and bring her statements together in harmony without contradiction. It just kind of, yeah, it doesn't work. doesn't work. It's just, it's clear that his heart wasn't really in trying to sort it out. And that's the thing. In Testimonies, Volume 9, Ellen White counseled believers that they should not claim their rights if claiming those rights would hinder the cause of God. Okay, this is an example. Doug Morgan, the histor Adventist historian, points out how she blasted that statement, calling it, quote, the most flagrant submission to prevailing prejudices, end quote. What Sheaf completely missed, as Morgan notes, is that Ellen White was just paraphrasing Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, which, just to refresh your memory, says, not in the NIV, I have the right to do anything, you say. Paul is quoting his critics. But then Paul adds, but not everything is beneficial, right? All things are lawful, but not all things are useful, that kind of thing. That's basically what Ellen White was saying. Like, she, she was basically saying, look, the colored people have the right to full equality in every sense of the word with white people. But they should not make or lay claim to that equality when doing so would hinder the cause of preaching the gospel. She's trying her best to echo Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. And, and Sheaf just kind of misses this. And at the end of the day, it's, just, it's hard to dissect Sheaf's relationship with the church. And that's mainly because Sheaf kept his cards close to his chest. One thing is crystal clear, and that is that, for whatever reasons, Louis Sheaf did not have a close relationship with church leaders. And that's going to be our theme in this episode, by the way, just letting you know now. It was all too easy for both sides to fill the distance between them with assumptions. Both sides. 
We had an immensely gifted black preacher in a time of difficult racial issues with few close friends in administration or among his pastoral colleagues. In hindsight, it's not hard to see why he might leave the church someday and form his own denomination for black Seventh-day Adventists. I mean, he essentially ran a mini denomination within the Adventist church. As the, as the People's Church in D.C., he was their pastor, or the Berean Church in Los Angeles, they were personally loyal to him, and with few ties to bind him to church leadership, and no clear path of ever joining church leadership, why not leave? I mean, he would keep his large churches and lose his white bosses. I mean, that, that surely sounded like a win-win. Chief teamed up with John W. Manns to form this new denomination, which he called the Free Seventh-day Adventists. Now, Manns had been a tel- an evangelist who settled in Savannah, Georgia at long last. He, his congregation there built a church without asking church leaders for money, which most congregations did. They needed some money from the conference to build a church. They also kept the title to their property rather than handing it over to church leaders, as was policy. Again, you have another talented black leader who felt he couldn't trust white leaders with the deed to their property that they were paying for. Manns was tired of getting scraps from church leaders, building crummy black churches, while these huge whites-only sanitariums cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, or in the case of Glendale, millions. And when Manns took his congregation out of the denomination, he complained about discrimination, not about doctrine. The Manns summed up his problem with the Adventist church pretty clearly. He wrote, quote, Because bigoted white leaders among Seventh-day Adventists have fixed a permanent bar against the Negro leadership in the organization, many of the most intelligent Negro ministers are separated from the denomination, end quote. Manns blamed the church's racial practices as the reason many black Adventists left Christianity altogether. He called segregated schools schools of the world. Mans believed Adventists were the most racist Christians under heaven, a sin which would, quote, shame the papacy and make the devil blush, end quote. He complained, quote, they do this abominable, most detestable, discriminating in the organization, the church, the office, the school, and sanitarium. Nothing withstanding the Negro membership must make great sacrifices to aid in building up these wonderful institutions, end quote. In other words, black Adventists, in general poorer than their white counterparts, had to pay tithe, which was used in part to, to build institutions they were barred from using. Taxation without representation? This is a uniquely American recipe for disaster. Now, with nearly 2,500 members, black Adventism made up a sizable minority of Adventists in North America. It was getting increasingly difficult to ignore them, And when the People's Church, Sheep's Old Congregation in Washington, D.C., when the People's Church asked for money to help build a school for their children, since they couldn't go to any Adventist schools in the area, they were turned down again. And again, as Doug Morgan points out, a month earlier, the conference had voted to raise and send $25,000 to help upgrade Washington Missionary College. Now, another note of tension occurred when that same church allowed A.T. Jones to become a member. Jones was, against the wishes of church leaders, officially a Seventh-day Adventist once again. And now the issues with Jones and the racial tensions were intertwined at the People's Church. Again, the church asked the conference for some money, a mere $1,000, and again they were turned down. And then Louis Sheaf showed up. 
So we have the People's Church, A.T. Jones, and Louis Sheaf all together. Church leaders accordingly felt threatened at what they saw as Sheaf's attempt to win these black believers into Sheaf's new denomination. Church leaders didn't want to go out of their way to help black congregations or accommodate black Adventists into institutions owned by the church, but neither did they want them to leave. And many of these black believers felt trapped, felt frustrated, even if they stayed into the, in the church. Okay, keep that in mind. Just because they didn't leave didn't mean they were happy. Now, like Sheaf, the People's Church left the denomination a second time. And it probably didn't help that a few weeks after the People's Church left, church leaders pledged $18,000 to build a new black church in Washington, D.C. yet again. So they had $18,000, right, that they, could, that they could raise for a new church but wouldn't give the old church $1,000, right? Like this, this definitely just struck, struck a chord with believers in the area as a, as a, you know, a practice of discrimination. That's certainly what it looked like to them. I'm sure church leaders had a different explanation for that. Now, the church refusing to fund black projects had become a tradition by the time we get to James K. Humphrey in what Calvin Rock calls, quote, the most storied defection in black Adventist history, end quote. Humphrey was an early proponent for a Negro department, which, of course, happens in 1909. Years later, he famously recalled having been approached in 1905 and urged to leave the denomination. He publicly proclaimed his loyalty to the Seventh-day Adventist Church, rejected calls by other black preachers for him to leave. If Humphrey's memory is accurate, that, this means that he was tempted to leave the church before he was even an ordained minister in that church. And it's worth pausing on this point because a few things are now clear. First, that even though high-profile black preachers defected, most stayed in the church, okay? Second, that there were... Uh, there was considerable pressure on black believers to leave. They were pressured by black Christians on the outside who couldn't understand why you'd want to stay in a denomination that wouldn't let you eat in the general conference cafeteria, that wouldn't let you go to one of the church hospitals when you're sick, who wouldn't let you attend one of the church schools. Why would you want to stay in that kind of a church? Right. So they had that pressure uh, from within the black community, those who are outside the Adventist church. Like, why, why would you belong to that church? And they also had there was some internal pressure, uh, some discontent of believers inside the church who, who no doubt felt much of the same, right? Who, who they, they keenly felt that pressure. So when Humphrey trumpeted his immunity to these pressures, right? Like, I, I, don't, I was asked to leave in 1905. I said, no, I am going to stay. It must have been calculated to signal to church leaders that he's not Louis Sheaf. Right. Church leaders who had no doubt grown weary of these kind of high profile defections. Kellogg, not related to race, but Kellogg defects. Right. Sheaf, Manns, Humphrey saying, I'm staying. Now, Humphrey seems to have had a good relationship with church leaders from the beginning. He was one of the first members of the Negro Department's executive committee. He was a delegate to the General Conference session of 1913 and many sessions after that. His main church was in Harlem, where by 1920 he had 600 members. Now, those numbers made the first Harlem church the largest in the Atlantic Union. In fact, the third largest in America. Third largest Adventist church, white or black, in America. Humphrey became the de facto representative of black believers in the Atlantic Union, 
owing to the fact that most black believers in the Union were members of one of his churches. Of the 59 black delegates to the Greater New York Conference Constituency Session, 48 of them were from Humphrey's Harlem Congregation. So why did Humphrey stay while Sheaf and others left? I mean, we just we don't know for sure. Why did he stay at this point? One reason may have been uh, that he, he, he was more thoroughly apocalyptic in his faith. He admitted that when he first became an Adventist, he believed that Jesus would come in five years. Even after 20 years had passed, he still believed Jesus would return in this generation. Because of this belief, he could say two things. First, that anyone willing to jump ship at the 11th hour had no hope of swimming. Number two, as he put it in a sermon to the 1922 General Conference session, quote, let us thank God for what we suffer, end quote. Because Jesus is coming soon, we should expect suffering. We must learn to endure suffering of all kinds. In Humphrey's response to the brother who asked him to leave back in 1905, Humphrey claimed that he could find no precedent in the Bible for leaving God's movement, quote, under any circumstances, whatever, of hardships and trials and troubles, of wrong treatment by his brethren, never a precedent for any man to turn aside from God's organized plan of work and succeed, end quote. The part of that that stands out to me is the phrase, wrong treatment by his brethren, right? Even if you're treated wrongly by your, by your, your brethren in the church, you shouldn't leave. Humphrey, like most black Adventists, were, of course, well aware of the church's mistakes, he simply just didn't think leaving was the right thing to do. He said this in the context of another wave of John W. Manz's criticism of the church, so we must understand Humphrey in that context. Manz is out there claiming that the church is racist, etc., etc., etc. Humphrey is on the inside saying, look, I get it. There's wrong treatment by your brethren. I get it, but that's no reason to leave the church. In the 1920s, Humphrey really was the new center of black Adventism. He had planted some seven churches in New York City, baptized over 300 people. His first Harlem church was the third largest in the United States, as we've said, and he wasn't even close to being done. He hinted that he'd love to be sent to Philadelphia and Chicago to plant churches as well. Of course, it may have occurred to church leaders that, that those churches, like Sheaves, might prove to be personally loyal to Humphrey. So, in any case, they denied his request to leave New York City. And then dark clouds began to roll in. In 1929, Beryl Holness, a member of the First Harlem Church, applied to attend Loma Linda, became Loma Linda University, and was denied on account of what the school called her, quote, nationality. That same year, black Adventist leaders banded together and asked for creation of and leadership of regional conferences. These regional conferences would allow black Adventists to hire and fire their own workers, raise and dispense funds, hold title to property, basically anything a state conference can do. The general conference set up a committee of 18 people to study the issue, including Humphrey, though Humphrey was one of six blacks among 11 whites, so they were outnumbered about two to one on the committee. In the end, the committee, quote, emphatically and absolutely, unquote, shot the idea down. What's more, the black leaders were told, quote, black conferences are out of the question. Don't ever ask for a black conference again, end quote. We'll see who gets the last laugh there. Somewhere in here, Humphrey began to change. With the idea of regional conferences shot down, stomped on, and burned, the notion of an all-black community where black members 
owned and operated everything sounded pretty good to Humphrey. He called this idea Utopia Park, which, in hindsight, could be the title of a Stephen King novel. Anyway, you have to understand that the 1800s and early 1900s were an era for utopian projects, even if few of them lasted very long. We're more cynical about these utopian projects today, right? They're now dystopian projects for us. But Humphrey wanted to build this utopian New Jersey. Yes, New Jersey, the state all of us naturally associate with a utopia. Anyways, don't be too hard on him for this idea. I, I think it's worth getting your mind where his was. I mean, ev everywhere you see your people are not allowed in this hospital or that school. You know, you, you're, you're not able to, to exercise the, the, the political weight that your community should be having in society, right? In the South, black people aren't allowed to get to the polls. They're being charged poll taxes. They're being beat. They're being lynched. And it's like, so the idea of maybe we could just purchase a few acres, build our own houses, build our own factories, you know, whatever to work in, uh, have our own school, have our own retirement home, you know, have canoeing and, and pick all these sort of things like for us to do. And can, we can just be walled off from the world, but not completely separate from it. Right. Like that that has purchase. That That's a temptation that doesn't seem as far fetched. Right. The idea wasn't we call it he calls it a utopia park, but the idea isn't that life was going to be perfect there, that we're going to build this perfect human community. Uh, it was more of a, a, a desire for these things that they could not obtain in the world around them, including in the church. Now, so Humphrey began selling lots. You could get a house for $600 or, or a house on a corner lot for 650 You could buy business property for 750 All colored people were welcome, regardless of church or creed. It was, uh, was non-sectarian. And that's, of course, how uh, John Harvey Kellogg describes uh, his project as well, and uh, that's a phrase that will alert church leaders and uh, raise some red flags with them. But in any case, it was meant to be a paradise, right? 16 acres of hills, gardens, a, a, a three-acre lake, all within view on a good day of New York City. There would be tennis and canoeing, and they even have a theme song. They wrote a theme song for the place. There would be a sanitarium and a nursing home and well, first Harlem was on board, and the church began going around Harlem, fundraising for Utopia Park. The Greater New York Conference noticed when tithes began to drop. Then they saw an advertisement for Utopia Park with the byline, Utopia Park, the future spot of America for colored people, next to the name Pastor J.K. Humphrey. The conference president, Louis K. Dixon, wrote Humphrey for answers like, hello, one of my pastors is trying to build Disneyland before Disney. Can you explain this to me? Humphrey replied that, yes, there was a thing called Utopia Park, but this is a, a black people thing, so thanks for checking in on me, but bye. Dixon thought Humphrey was being a little cagey. Humphrey was a conference employee. The headquarters of this Utopia Park was currently at the First Harlem Church, which was a conference-owned property. So, yeah, it's not just a black person thing. The church wants to know as well. For Humphrey to say this didn't concern the Adventist church was disingenuous at best. Dixon placed the issue on the agenda for the conference executive committee and asked Humphrey to explain himself there. Humphrey was a, a member of the conference executive committee. Well, he showed up. 
mumbled a few generic things about the project, and left. No one was any clearer on the project uh, than they were before the meeting began. Well, soon uh, the Atlantic Union Executive Committee was involved, so Humphrey was asked once again to explain his project to the Union Executive Committee when it met in late October. Humphrey was also a member of the Union Executive Committee. So between the conference and union meetings, the conference meeting in the beginning of September, the union meeting at the end of October, the Greater New York Conference sent someone to apply with the city of New York for a permit to be able to solicit funds during the Christmas season. They had done this for a few years now, no big deal. Now, when that conference employee got there, he was asked by the Commissioner of Public Welfare if he knew a Reverend J.K. Humphrey. The conference employee hesitated, recognizing that wherever this conversation is going, it's going to be way above my pay grade. So he brought in Dixon the next day, and the commissioner handed the conference and president 27 pages of material about Utopia Park, which the city had compiled in hearings about it. Dixon was, like, super embarrassed that the city knew far more about an Adventist pastor and what he was doing than the church knew. Well, when it came time for the union executive committee, Humphrey refused to attend, even though he was a member of that committee. The union was, let's just say, not amused and voted to revoke Humphrey's ministerial credentials until the thing could be sorted out. Again, they're not, they're not angry that he didn't attend. They're just, they couldn't see how uh, Humphrey could be involved in a side hustle like this, you know, selling property, when Adventist pastors were banned from having a side hustle. I mean, even today, we Adventist pastors sign statements saying we don't work on the side. Yet another conference executive committee was held a few days later. Humphrey was told his credentials were being revoked. After 27 years as pastor of First Harlem, he was no longer the pastor of First Harlem. The next Sabbath, Humphrey gave his last sermon as pastor. And that evening, because Adventists have to wait for Sabbath to end, uh, church leaders showed up for a business meeting. And at this meeting, Dixon tried to take an even hand. He, he praised Humphrey's ability Right, he, he let it be known that the, the church cares and we don't want to lose you know, anybody, that sort of thing. But he criticized Humphrey's lack of participation, either in the union executive committee that he didn't attend, or as a member of the committee that last spring that was set up to study the idea of regional conferences. Because according to Dixon, Humphrey never attended one of those meetings, which is odd, considering that Humphrey had been a vocal supporter of the idea, perhaps with 11 white and Six black members, Humphrey had just assumed that the result was a foregone conclusion. Who knows? But at the end of five hours of meeting together in this business meeting, Dixon urged the congregation to be loyal to the church and not to any individual. Now, that phrase that Dixon used there, however he worded it, it should clue us in that Dixon was smart enough to know how all of these meetings had gone so far with sheep, with mans, with others. Talented black preacher, raised up a big congregation, knew that the congregation tends to be loyal to the preacher more than to the church. This was a problem that church leaders hadn't figured out yet. When all was said and done, the congregation demanded the deed to their property, voted to lead the Seventh-day Adventist church, like chief, like man's churches. Dixon later called this vote open rebellion. He called Utopia Park a, quote, speculative real estate scheme, End quote, and claimed that Humphrey was just bitter that he didn't get asked to be the head of the church's Negro department. Again, newspapers saw Humphrey as a reluctant crusader against a racist church, 
But in some papers, accusations also flew that Humphrey had misappropriated funds by putting the donations for Utopia Park into his bank account. The legal implications of this whole affair lasted deep into the 1930s. It was just a mess. A mess. Lawsuits uh, flew around. Recriminations had to be untangled. The first Harlem congregation refused to leave the church building, so the denomination sued. Eventually won, of course, because they held the deed to the property. Then the congregation said, oh, you know what? We're just going to, can we buy it from you? And why that wasn't their first move is beyond me. But they they wanted to pay $25,000 for it, plus a little uh, upkeep. And the denomination, at least the General Conference, had no problem with that. In 1934, the New York Age, a, a black-run paper in New York City, carried a headline above their masthead, Reverend Humphrey wins out at conference. This was a story about Humphrey's new group that he had formed, like Louis Sheaf, he formed a denomination. The United Sabbath Day Adventists is what he called it, and it was about some of their internal politics. Humphrey was fighting for his place as leader of this denomination, and I'm, I'm not making this up, okay? The, the, I'm not making this up at all. The, the, the New York Age reported that at this meeting of the United Sabbath Day Adventists with Humphrey, a husband and wife allegedly arrived from Jamaica to confront Humphrey with his secret love child. Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. If you're not in America, you're probably not going to get that reference. Anyways, it all got very weird and very messy. Interestingly, the Jamaican Adventists, and by this I mean Jamaica, Jamaica, the island, not Jamaica, New York, they sided with the church. Not being African-American, they're looking at this race thing differently, can't understand uh, what's going on. And I, sh I should add that Humphrey himself uh, was Jamaican. Anyways, the, the, but he had worked in America for some years, right, become acquainted with the plight of colored people in America. But the Jamaican-Jamaican sided with the church. The church there released a special supplemental issue dedicated to repudiating Humphrey's actions. The Jamaicans took issue with Humphrey's claim that black people pay tithes and offerings to get nothing in return. This is what they wrote, uh, this paragraph, quote, he knows, as all may know, that a large part of the annual appropriations of the General Conference is being used for the colored races of the world. White people have collected nearly half of the harvest in gathering receipts, which are now used for Jamaican church schools and church buildings for our colored people. How terrible then for a man to declare that and they're quoting Humphrey here. In no instance has the colored people gotten any returns or benefits from the white people for their money. The Jamaican goes on. Mr. Humphrey must know that for every pound raised by the colored people, many pounds have been raised and contributed by our white brethren. End quote. So Humphrey had more positions of church leadership than Sheaf had. Once again, it seems that he had few close personal relationships with church leaders. And once again, this gulf between them made it impossible to resolve a disagreement. Dixon corresponded with Humphrey. Yes, he wrote him letters. He did everything by the book, but he didn't go out of his way to personally discover the truth. I mean, he didn't, for instance, visit the headquarters of the Utopia Project, the first Harlem church, until the business meeting to fire their pastor, their pastor of 27 years, right? If that's the first time the conference president is visiting your church during this whole affair, it, it's too late, right? If, you're, if your goal as conference president is to win them over, 
to, to let them know that the church values them and cares for them, you should probably show up before you have to show up to fire their pastor. Uh, right. So you're, you're seeing like this, this gap between church leadership who are, who are doing things by the book in this case, right? Just kind of uh, clinically, perfunctorily, just handling things you know, as they should be handled according to the book. Uh, but, but you're not seeing a lot of heart. You're not seeing a lot of personal warmth here between the people involved in this situation. I just, I can't emphasize enough how much personal relationships matter in church work. They matter far more than position. How important these things are to resolving issues, and no issues back then were more important or of greater significance than the color line. Yes, we're going to have many more color line episodes in this podcast, and yes, Many of them are going to sound like the same plot line over and over. But it's a story that needs to be told. There are lessons here that need to be learned. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour. So I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.